You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Numerous awards, including the Dennis Devlin Memorial Award and the PPI Award for Radio Drama. She's a member of Ostana and was from 2013 until 2016 the Ireland Chair of Coratry, during which time she gave three fascinating lectures that were uh, published under the wonderful title Imaginary Bonnets with Real Bees in Them. Um, so without further ado, um, follow me.
in a way, or what is preserved in poetry, like flies or petals in amber. So this is a little poem by one of the few, what I would call indigenous Dubliners, if there's such a thing. And it's called Flower Stall by Tia Ryan. Her mother was a street seller. Her grandmother was a street seller before her. Get your bunches, one for a tenner, selling flowers on Henry Street. Me and my ma, with thorns in our hands, coins rattling in our pockets, and the smell of roses in the air. So the small poem that they had worked so diligently with, had painted and made images of and explored, is a poem called Buying Winkles. And it is really my childhood fossilized uh, in this poem. I didn't write it to represent anything other than my own urge to represent my memory and my life. It was written as an adult, uh, remembering a childhood. So it's highly, uh, it's highly manipulated material. Um, I actually would have had a composite old woman selling wrinkles. Many years after I wrote this poem, I worked in the prisons. And one young man seemed very agitated during a reading. I went in to do a reading that day. Uh, and it turned out that he recognized his, his grandmother in this old woman. And one of the things I discovered in the prisons was that if you were to have any address in Dublin um, and be a prisoner, you were more likely to have an address in the communities that I had grown up in than you might have had in other parts of the city. And you were more likely to go into that institution than you were to come to this institution, more of which and all. But this is buying wrinkles. My mother would spare me sixpence and say, hurry up now and don't be talking to strange men on the way. I'd dash from the ghosts on the stairs where the bulb had blown out into Gardner Street, all relief. A bonus if the moon was in the strip of sky between the tall houses or stars out. But even in rain, I was happy. The winkles would be wet and glisten blue like little night skies themselves. I'd hold the tanner tight. I'd jump every crack in the pavement. I'd wave up to women at sills or those lingering in doorways and weave a glad path through men heading out for the night. She'd be sitting outside the Rose Bowl bar on an orange crate, a pram loaded with pails of winkles before her. When the bar door swung open, they'd leak the smell of men together with drink, and I'd see light in golden mirrors. I envied each soul in the hot interior. I'd ask her again to show me the right way to do it. She'd take a pin from her shawl, open the eyelid, stick it in, so till you feel a grip, then slither him out, gently mind, the sweetest extra winkle that brought the seed to me. Tell your ma I picked them fresh this morning. I bear the newspaper twists, bulging fat with winkles, proudly home, like torches. As I said, I didn't write that to represent any community. I didn't write it to represent uh, anything other than my own need to express uh, what had formed me. Um, and I think I, I would be very wary of uh, what I call on behalfism. And I kind of feel that anyone who would ask me to represent them uh, might need their head examined. I'm not a politician. The power I'm after and the power I play with is not political power. So I have no mandate to represent anybody, except maybe going about the world, I might represent the spirit of poetry itself, uh, sometimes configured as a muse, as a, a feminine force. And I can buy into that with time. Um, so, Moving to a different time uh, in, in, in the, the process, um, I wrote this poem uh, called Alma Mater, which kind of was an attempt to 
to integrate, because I think that's maybe what I, why I write, is to integrate disparate material uh, for myself. But what I found is that the truer I am to my own experience, the more likely it is that other people and even communities will actually take ownership of the poems and tell me that I represent them and tell me that the poems represent them. But I think for me to set out in my practice as a writer from that point would be to become, I don't know, maybe even megalomanic about uh, things. So, so this is a poem called Alma Mater. One of my great teachers, I've had many in this university where I came in the door at 17, uh, was the classic uh, scholar W.B. Stanford. And he, uh, my very first lecture was on the Greek myths. Um, and he wrote a very small book called Enemies of Poetry, very uh, influential as I got older. Um, and in that book, he, his thesis was that poetry is not sociology, it's not history, it's a sovereign state unto itself with absolute freedom in the hands of the poet. So I, I heard that, it was music to my ears. This poem is dedicated to Eleni Cullinan, who is the current uh, Ireland Professor of Poetry. And again, she taught me, in my very first year, she taught me etymology. Um, so she opened up pathways of uh, engagement with the words themselves. Kieran Carson, the Belfast poet, said when once asked uh, in an interview, the interviewer said, oh, you, you, you um, the language, um, he said uh, that he serves the language, it's not the other way around, the transaction is that he serves, Kieran serves the language, not that the language serves me. So alma mater, and just as a point of information, the elms which were cut down when I was in my first few years here, the great elms came down in the 70s, 1972, when I came into the university. Um, alma mater, the word comes from the elms. Uh, the elm was used as a structure upon which the wild vine could climb. And it's, this one is dedicated to Eleni Cullinan. They were taking down the elms when I was first a student here. I walked through front gate to sit at the back of Eleni Cullinan's lectures, being a back of the class girl, being a back of the bus girl, being just gone 17 and measuring the teachers who would lead me towards the light against my own inclination be led astray. They were taking down the elms, concentric rings, the ripples of my life, like the long playing vinyl discs my music was graven on. The whole world rhymed for me, and I wore a dress of green velvet. My mother helped me sew. The elms' asymmetric leaves chimed with its pattern of paisley. The song itself was blind courage, the heart's true refrain. Words, said the poet Pasternak, carry their own ghosts. I see them daily in the babble of the city, the weighted down old women with their geist bags of home. In languages I dreamt of when I was a child, watching satyrs chase nereids and naiads across the snowfields of a tenement ceiling bordered with panpipes, acanthus and orphic lyres. I never knew we were disadvantaged till they told us so in school. You could say they beat it into us, literally. We were told we were stupid. I knew we were only poor. But I was queen of every blossoming thing I could name or hazard a guess to the meaning of. Dear ghosts flocking like starlings to the elm branches. At the back of the class in the month of all hollows, I heard that galaxy contained the Greek word for milk, gala. 
I could taste the Milky Way, our cosmic mother sacramental on my tongue and tripped the light fantastic into verse, the milk of human kindness, the milk of kinship, the nourishing milk, which brings me back to alma mater, nursing mother, fostering mother, close kin to Ceres, close kin to Our Lady, the, medieval, the medievalist's queen of heaven, golden chain of memory, link by shining link, that binds me to this place, that lets me feel at home, a nursling at the path of human and non-human knowledge, my nurturing metric, my compassionate mother load. The elms are down, and down their greeny shade, their rugged bark where long-gone students carve their names within a heart. And gone are all the moons and clouds and stars, once snagged in their rigging, when I was finding my feet and standing on them, my own two feet, clad in Doc Martens, clad in sandals, ready to walk the song lines of learning, ready to make an abiding song of poem. So thank you for your attention today. small drawings. 
of the, no, actually, I started with Team 28. But, oh, yes, a series of small drawings called Other Landscapes. Um, and they're going to show you some, some drawings I did over the last year or two. They're all kind of to do with housing and home. And they're going to look, look at a few drawings to do with kind of um, site reconstruction and redevelopments. And then the last ones are what I call um, my transitional sculptural moments that are to be found in our, our city and our village. Um, the title Other Landscapes comes from a book written by Patrick Keeler, who is a, film, a British filmmaker and, um, and writer, and he a group of essays published, and it's called A View from the Train, Cities and Other Landscapes. And I had never really put the landscapes and cities together in my mind until this title, so I take the other landscapes very much um, from, from that, the, the title of that book. Um, and there was another quote in that book, which I've always kept with, with me since, and it's an Oscar Wilde quote, and it is, the true mystery of the world is in the visible and not the invisible. So I think, I think what I do with my work is that um, I kind of, I look for, I look, or I ask questions rather about the invisible forces that, um, that, that make something be the way it is, like for example, a, a situation like this, um, I kind of, I'm asking questions about like, why, why is this like this? What forces have acted on this to, to create this? Um, so a lot of these other landscapes are, um, they're kind of neglected corners, um, awkward spaces um, that might have been formally uh, planned, but they have kind of had erratic occupation and use um, over a period of time. Uh, this one, um, space in a sense, and it's part of that big, huge um, investment in roads and uh, motorways and uh, transport for, for the private car essentially that, that we've really invested heavily in over the last few decades, and like it's a slip road from the M50 onto the, you know, to the airport, um, and it's designed to be passed through and not to linger or stay in in any sense. So these spaces, they vary a lot. This one is... Um, this is Daily Mount Football Club in Pittsburgh. I'm just wondering, has anyone been to a match there? So it's a real iconic, um, iconic uh, North Dublin uh, and the home of Irish football. But th these, uh, these are the terraces, and you see they're really overgrown, but they were designed by Archibald Leach who, in the early 30s. And he was a really famous engineer who, who, who designed many famous soccer grounds in the UK and and Daily Mount Park. So these are down to the early 30s, the, the, the terracing and, and the barriers. Um, I could speak a lot about Daily Mount because as, as Tom mentioned, myself and my friend and colleague Jackie Burke uh, are doing an Arts Council funded project on the whole architectural space and legacy of Daily Mount, but I won't go any further because we'll be here all night. But it's a really fascinating and amazing place. Um, uh, but the good news about it, for those that don't know, is that it's been saved from the brink and it's been bought by Dublin City Council and it's going to be developed as a municipal sports stadium, which is really good news for, for the area and it's good news also for the new football club. Um, so this is another type of space, a kind of forgotten pass-by corner. It's the gable of a house. And um, on that is spray-painted a, um, a, a goal for football. Um, and I really just think this kind of really brings into question the whole how we design our public spaces in terms of the needs of children and teenagers and how arguably they are designed out of public space and we don't really like them in public space very much unless they're very much controlled and we've designed these kind of like ghettoed playgrounds for them. But in terms of our you know, common streets and footpaths, they're, they're really not very welcome. And this is an example of of kids trying to adapt their environment to, to their needs. Um, this is just pretty typical. This is on the Royal Canal, and it's, I mean, we, we all experience this kind of public realm um, every day. And uh, this, I drew this last year. No, I drew this earlier this year, actually, I think. Um, no, sorry, I drew it last year. This, is la this time last year. And, I mean, you know, what, what can I say? The situation is worse. Now than then, and this was on the banks of the, the, the Royal Canal. So, 
Um, so and I'm going to show you, so that's the other landscape. There's an ongoing series um, looking at those kind of eclectic corners and thinking of them in terms of landscape. So this is kind of different, and I just it's an earlier drawing that I put in. Um, it's, uh, it's called Island with Cable Ties, and I was talking to Tom about this earlier because we both know it intimately. It's right out outside Kilster Shopping Centre. But what I really like, well, there's lots of things I like about this. One, it's, it's an essential part of uh, public infrastructure that's used all the time, but that is really not noticed or thought about or questioned. Um, and I also find the narrative that it holds fascinating because at one point there was nothing there. And then there was a platform, and then they painted stripes, and then there was barriers, and then, you know, so it was just added on to and added on to. Um, and it's, it's so not fit for purpose. We were just talking about this, um, you can't go too, too high, et cetera, et cetera. But the really great bit is when there's an election, and it's festooned with smiling faces <laughs> of our local would-be um, uh, politicians. Um, okay, so... Thank you. 
I have to resist. But it's also potently wondrous to design and hiding. And then the last thing in the whole housing um, thing that I drew, I, 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 this is quite new, this is very close to me. And what I really like about this is that it is so orderly. Um, it's completely not noteworthy. It's a huge part of our architectural heritage, or well, the visual heritage, is this, this kind of really orderly housing. Um, and I just, I kind of drew it in reaction to, to, to the flats, to kind of, because this is, this is a private and it's quiet and orderly, ordinary and not political um, in any obvious way, really. Um, so, I, I'm doing the next thing here. So, by drawing all these buildings and structures and corners, you know, I suppose what, what really has come home to me is that buildings have, have lives. And I would never have thought about it that way. I mean, of course buildings begin and have a middle and, and have, a, have an end. But they really start to, to me to be kind of, to, to really have lives. And to be, um, so and so they, they have lives and, ha and, and a life cycle. Um, and the whole city has this life cycle going on and it's ever evolving and changing. Um, Situation that I wouldn't have been so aware of without without engaging all these drawings. This is kind of like another type of building. It's um, this is it is a 22-story continuous core concrete tower in the process of being built, and it's on Sir John Robertson's Heath, and it's um, it's in a very prominent site down near where the the, the Grand Canal exits onto onto the river. Um, it's called Capital and then some. Mm. So the I called it Capital because the the developers called the whole dock Capital Dock, which I thought was a kind of an extraordinary name, really. But um, and I, when I thought about the name, I thought like it's it's an interesting word. It has lots of different meanings. Well, a number of different meanings. And the first one that came to mind was the whole flow of capital. Um, and the whole flow of capital that must have gone into buildings. It's a really huge development. Um, and the fact that, you know, international capital really doesn't really have borders in you know, the same way maybe that people have borders. And then the other meaning of capital, of course, is like the capital city. And like big, big developments, developments like this are really kind of statements that we're a capital um, city. And it kind of brings home the whole idea of the nation state. Uh, which does have borders. So I kind of thought that the, the word capital there kind of juxtaposes these, these kind of um, these two elements together. So this is a capital and then some, and this is capital more is easy, which is taken from an insurance ad for more is easy. City. Uh, so capital more is easy. Um, so, yeah, so sorry, with, with the with uh, development, you have demolition, as in the post villas being demolished, and, <coughs> and this is a uh, this is also one of those sculptural moments that I talk about. Um, I just saw this, and I, I actually thought, my God, that was beautiful. <laughs> you know, that was my real uh, kind of initial kind of reaction to it. But this is on Molesworth Street, and anyone who's been around Molesworth Street over the last two years, it's been phenomenal what's been going on there in terms of the demolition and rebuilding. Um, and it, I, I don't understand the invisible forces that are making that happen, but there's lots of them, and they're really strong. And I suppose by drawing these things, I'm trying to get the, well, I, I'm drawing them for my own benefit, but they make me think, like, what's going on? Why is this this way? Um, so, yeah, so this is kind of another, these are all from building sites. This is, um, I thought this was, this is kind of like a beautiful bit of marble sculpture. It's a concrete, wood, and stone, lovely and minimal. And when I saw it, what I thought of was the Keystone and Newgrange, the sculpture from the Keystone and Newgrange. And of course, these are made from the, the claw hammer lifting and uh, lifting and dropping wood. Um, this is a really like maritime equivalent of the um, traffic lights, the traffic islands. So this is, these are either side of the East Lake Bridge. Next time you're going over, look, look either side, there's at least eight of them. 
and uh, there are buffers to stop the ships um, from bumping into the bridge or to tie onto, and they're very light attractive, like all these add-ons and signs and lights that have all been put up as well. Dublin recently of the, the, the Lewis. Um, and this is called underpinning. <coughs> this literally is what underpins the Lewis. These are re reinforcing bows. Um, but it is one of those kind of sculptural moments. Um, and they're transitional. They're there. They might be there an hour. They might be there a day. They might be, they might be there a week. But they're, they're all moving and, and uh, evolving in this uh, ever-changing uh, city that we're in. Um, Myself, and I thought it's interesting that that Paula said, you know, you're not representing, you know, anyone, and I'm really doing for me, and it's my way of exploring the city and my way of finding out about it and my way of trying to understand what's going on, and and it's also me asking questions, it's not me having having any answers to this. But the one thing that that has made me think, the one thing that has made me realise really is that the essence of a city. restored and it was never going to change again and it was a very very strange place and I think we don't appreciate that this really the essence of the city is it's not is it's constantly changing and evolving but I think what's important is okay so there's these invisible forces acting and changing the city all the time but what really matters is like who are the intended beneficiaries of this change uh, and that really changes over time and um, you know if you think of the the you know the, the public spending in the, in the mid-20th century in public houses, the intended beneficiaries are very clear. If you think of Croke Villas now and the new spending that's happening there, like who are the beneficiaries of that? Who are the beneficiaries of this? Um, so I think that's really key um, in terms of motivation and the beneficiaries. I have one last thing to say. Um, so I, I spend an awful lot of time doing these drawings, and I really sometimes think, you know, what am I doing? You know, it's so out of step with life our contemporary life and times. It's so slow and it's so low tech. I mean, you need you know, a rubber, a pencil, and a paper. Um, and I kind of, in a way, that's the point, I suppose. But you do doubt yourself sometimes, like, what is this doing? Um, so the exhibition Dark Space that you refer to, um, Tom McGurk, who's a lecturer at Chester University, um, he wrote an essay uh, for me. His speciality is drawing. And he wrote an essay, which is online, and he talked about uh, drawing being knowledge creation. And I kind of went, thank you, Tom, for thinking of it. You know, you're, making, you're helping me make some sense of this. But I think it's interesting in this uh, university context, which is so much about research and dissemination of information, I think really, you know, this drawing for me um, really is another form of this. And it's my way of trying to understand and learn.
be focusing on film set in Dublin, but also looking um, beyond that to consider the industry's approach to ethnic minorities and how that meets or evades real life experiences. Um, looking back a little bit, during the so-called Celtic Tiger, Irish cinema became more Dublin-centric than ever, focusing on the city as a space where, as uh, Trinity's own Reese Barton notes, uh, the only thing that was culturally distinct was the lack of cultural distinction. So Dublin was positioned as this very secular, free-thinking, cosmopolitan space, um, a wealthy, sophisticated, modern, uh, first-world city. And in filmic terms, it was very much a reaction against the Dublin of Jordan and Sheridan and, and working-class um, Dublin. So the focus was much more on middle and upper-class locals, much more interested in sex and politics. And around this time, um, while there was that focus on rom-coms and luxury and so on, there were also some films that looked at the flip side of the so-called economic miracle, questioning who it was really benefiting and who was being overlooked. So films like the Duncan-centric Adam and Paul, the self-explanatory Pajama Girls, and Savage, a film that follows a journalist who is mugged, um, castrated, and then becomes a predator uh, the most successful film of this period, Once, used the rom-com lightness of the standard Tiger films but centralised characters marginalised by those films, placing a working-class Dubliner and an immigrant in its lead roles. So the film reflected the changing nature of the city while utilising familiar Irish exile and impoverished um, the flower girl narrative. NUIG Tony Tracy compares it to Anthony Cronin's accounts of 1950s Dublin and Sean O'Casey's plays. But despite featuring Phil Linnett's music and monument and the backdrop of this fast-moving, ever-changing city, it imagined Dublin as an entirely white space, perhaps due to its nostalgic dreamlike realism, which itself was inspired by 1950s French New Wave cinema. Um, at around this time, there was also the very popular French film Amelie, which again was set in capital city, and positioned the city in a similar light, in this nostalgic kind of whitewashing of the city working classes, but received a much greater backlash for it. Um, as we move towards the present, films like Traffic, Tabby Lakeen, The Front Line, Kisses, and Between the Canals have positioned Dublin's black inhabitants as Africans, and mostly as refugees and illegal migrants, vulnerable to or working in conjunction with the city's criminal underworld. So in general, as victims, occasionally as victims who themselves become villains. By contrast, Maurice Street Masala looked at how the city could be positively impacted by diversity. In this case, turning Maurice Street into the backdrop for a rom-com Bollywood musical. Likewise, The Blacksicist was a fun fusion of Irish comedy and exploitation. But since the crash, there have been far fewer films presenting any kind of ethnic diversity and non-white characters have largely remained stigmatized and isolated. A Day for Mad Mary and Your Ugly 2 use European or African foreigners to set a scene rather than move the narrative forward. Um, Cardboard Gangsters, Kissing Candice and Halal Daddy break the norm by featuring black and mixed race characters who are Irish rather than foreigners. But the form, former two are ghetto narratives, so kind of re repeat the old stereotype of um, the black character being a victim or a villain who's drawn to the underworld. The latter is surprisingly culturally insensitive. There remains a gap between the island we experience and the island that we project to ourselves and to others through our screen media. And when it comes to the capital city, that gap becomes even more pronounced. I think what's fundamental here is the way we want to be perceived versus our reality, and within that, how we sell the city to the rest of the world through the, our media. The idea of traditional Catholic Ireland may not be very popular at home, but sells well to the Irish diaspora, particularly in America. And the labeling of rural Ireland as a place without technology or diversity is largely a misnomer to Irish consumers, but again, sells well to US markets, hence P.S. I Love You's popularity various other quaint uh, films. As Vincent O'Toole notes, there is no genuine newness in the so-called New Irish, as Ireland has a history of cultural and ethnic heterogeneity, but, quote, understanding globalisation in the Irish context is as much a task of remembrance as it is of encountering the new. Mixed race and black characters have featured in many Irish films, particularly since the greater influx of migrants in the 90s. 
but they are often stereotypically cast as lone, troublesome characters, as prostitutes, single mothers, drug dealers, pimps, and so on. They are also usually cast as foreigners, mostly illegal, rather than citizens, and are often used as vehicles to express the otherness of straight white Irish, uh, of straight white Irish men, as in, for example, The Guard or The Crying Game, where a black or mixed-race character is paired with a white male in a semiotic mirroring that visually conveys the exclusion and alienation felt by the white Irish character who is thus constructed as liminal and oppressed. But we also have some positive narratives, for example, the horror films Isolation and the Dublin set Boy Eats Girl. The in these films, the mixed-race character is irrefutably Irish and responsible for saving the nation from an alien invasion. Non-white children have been rare so far in Irish narratives, but Pink Street is one of few to include a black Irish schoolboy in its Dublin 80s setting. So in screen culture as in the socio-political arena, Dublin is often represented through a series of tropes which exclude its non-white citizens or present the notion that prior to the Tiger there was no ethnic diversity here, which is simply not the case. Whether we consider the well-established Jewish and Italian communities or the 1940s complaints from the Nigerian government about the treatment of its medical students at universities in the city, Dublin has, like any other capital city, always attracted outsiders. While Celtic Tiger Cinema was eager to exploit the capital's diversity, during the recession most filmmakers reverted to the investment-friendly narratives of young white heterosexual men. Even European migrants were absent in these narratives. And while initiatives from the film board have led to more female-driven narratives, post-crash cinema is only starting to look outwards again. By contrast, television has produced a series of shows reflective of the Dublin we actually live in, with women on the verge presenting a racially integrated cast of alienated middle-class women, and taken down looking at the complex issues arising from the direct provision system and those growing up Irish but other within it. Fair City, despite its um, drawbacks, has long had an integrated cast representing various Dubliners, whether white or black Irish, European or African, a shift no doubt due in part to the show's hiring in a, of an African-American writer. Likewise, theatre has seen some important productions looking at Dublin's ethnic others, from the Nigerian reimagining of Sing's Playboy to Ruth Nader's Hamlet, which, due to the casting and stage directions, felt more like Epic's Dublin than Denmark. UCD Siam Negra has described the dichotomy underlying Irish identity as a signifier of both an enriched whiteness and an oppressed off-whiteness. Off Hence Jimmy's famous line in 91 for commitment, where he, a white working class musician from Dublin inspired by soul music, collapses colonial discourses to replace his position with James Brown's and declares to his confused friends, say it loud and black men proud. Yet this film, as with most of its time, absences the black Irish. One of the main problems with this and other films touching on the topic is that blackness is so often used as a tokenistic identity to shore up ideas of our own victimhood. This erases our own complicity in racism, with very few films presenting characters who experience any kind of abuse or are themselves racist, despite the fact that we have escalating problems in this area. The city's show, the race, show Racism in the Red Card event a few weeks ago are a welcome response. To quote the Lord Mayor, racism is still a very real problem that we must continue to tackle. Films are needed which address it directly rather than continue with the popular discourse that we can't be racist because we've historically been victims of it. RT's Taken Down is an important milestone in this respect as it has not only brought to light the extent of racist attitudes through the online discourse which I have generated, but also deals with these issues in its storyline. Uh, it features racist language, it features institutional discrimination, and uses these elements to address and critique prejudice as well as dispelling prejudice through the gradual revelation of its characters' tragic backstories. And it deals with the hyphenated Irish, those Dubliners who are, for example, themselves Nigerian and Irish, both other and us. The sympathetic treatment of a cop who harasses an asylum seeker until he commits suicide, but then quietly transforms into someone who will go above and beyond to find the killer of another asylum seeker housed at the same centre is a hopeful addition to an otherwise bleak narrative. It may be wildly idealistic, but it also avoids the usual cliches which shut down dialogue about racism and which often reduce the city's inhabitants to a series of melodramatic, melodramatic broad strokes 
the victims of the villains. CCU's Debbie Ying writes, given the current aversion to self-questioning, it is possible that Arlen did not, will not succeed in developing a truly vibrant and original <coughs> film output until minority filmmakers gain sufficient confidence to break free of the constraints of positive representation and until the country's new inhabitants establish a foothold in the culture industry and begin to speak in their own voices, be they migrant, refugee, second generation, hyphenated, naturalized, or diasporic Irish. In the short film Cry Rosa by Afromite Productions, was shown on ITE a few weeks ago, the authentic experiences of a mixed-race Irish woman growing up in Belfast are brought to life. In an all-too-common narrative, she's perceived as African rather than Irish, which, given the media's continued focus on blackness as foreign and tragic, continues to be the case for many young people. The film challenges the collapsing of all types of blackness into one and affirms her Irishness. New RTE comedies Women on the Verge and Finding Joy, as well as the indie rom-com The Randomer, feature mixed and black Irish characters who are part of the normal landscape of Dublin city life. And while taking down focus on, focuses on members of the subclass, it also creates spaces for Dublin brothers to take centre stage as multifaceted agents, both foreigner and local, victim and villain. RTE has been criticised in a new report by the European Broadcasters Union commissioned by RTE for being out of touch with its audience and having no discernible interest in or plans for becoming more diverse and inclusive. However, there are clearly positive changes afoot, and as ever, television is leading the way in various strands of programming. Tragic migration is not the only narrative attached to minorities anymore, though it remains dominant. Misrepresentation is just as damaging as underrepresentation, and it's clear that what we need is a media landscape that reflects the diversity of its audience as complex, nuanced individuals and great embodying multiple identities rather than just stereotypes. Colorblind casting is one option, but perhaps we also need to explore color-focused narratives in order to examine the lived experience of race and racism in today's Dublin. It's clear that we need to address subconscious bias in the industry and look into more representations that recognize the hybrid Irishness for many of its fame and the varieties of identity that Irishness encompasses. Movements towards gender equality have already had a positive effect with more women working behind the camera than ever, and hopefully this will inspire others to think about equal representation for ethnic minorities as well as LGBT communities and people with disabilities, who are among the many who remain severely underrepresented in our current media landscape. Thank you. <laughs>